Hello and welcome to the podcast for the October 2009 issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane here, joined this month by Alison Rowan from TLN. Alison, let's start with the CAVITAS studies. Here, long-term data concerning endovascular treatment or endarterectomy for carotid stenosis. Remind us about the clinical issue here, Alison, and the history of this trial. One of the major causes of stroke and transient ischemic attacks is a narrowing of the carotid artery as a result of atherosclerosis, and this might account for about one in five strokes. The two main treatment options for carotid artery stenosis are endarterectomy to surgically remove the deposits from the arterial wall, and endovascular treatment with angioplasty with or without stenting. The CAVITAS study was set up to compare the efficacy of these two treatment approaches and showed that the risk of stroke in the short term was similar with both treatments. However, there was a greater risk of restenosis after endovascular treatment, which raised concerns about the long-term efficacy of this approach. But until now, long-term data were scarce. So these latest reports present much-needed follow-up data on the risks of stroke and restenosis in patients in the CAVITAS trial up to 11 years after either endovascular or endarterectomy treatment. Thanks, Alison. So go on and tell us about, well, you've covered the methodology a bit, but go on and tell us about the details of these long-term follow-up studies and the key results. So in the first study of these two papers, there were 504 patients with carotid artery stenosis who were randomly assigned to receive either endovascular treatment or endarterectomy. At 30 days after treatment, there were more minor strokes among patients who had endovascular treatment compared with those who had the surgical procedure. After the 30-day post-treatment period, the long-term incidence of ipsilateral stroke, which is a stroke on the same side as the carotid stenosis, and the combined endpoint of stroke and transient ischemic attack were both higher in the endovascular treatment group than in the surgery group. But the overall risk of stroke was low, and these differences didn't reach significance. Also, I see there is a second CAVITAS trial, isn't there, alongside the the main study. Tell us more about that. So the aim of the second study was to look at the long-term effects of the two treatment procedures on the recurrence of stenosis. The researchers studied 413 patients with carotid stenosis who had been followed up for an average of five years and who had had neck ultrasound at yearly intervals to look for repeat stenosis. And what was the key finding here? The key finding here was that severe restenosis, and by that they mean a narrowing of 70% or more of the treated artery, was three times more likely to happen after endovascular treatment. So severe restenosis was seen in 31% of patients who had endovascular treatment and in 10% of those who had the surgery. So Alison, given these long-term data and other research projects in this field, is the debate now over? concerning uh, endovascular treatment or is there still a place for it in the treatment of carotid stenosis do you think? Well these long-term results certainly strengthen the arguments in favour of endarterectomy but as Peter Rothwell notes in an accompanying editorial it is possible that the worst results in the endovascular group might be partly attributable to the patients who are treated with angioplasty alone. Clinical practice has moved on since this trial was done and angioplasty alone that is without stenting is no longer the preferred form of endovascular treatment, so the results may not be generalisable to current practice. Further data from ongoing long-term studies of endarterectomy versus stenting are eagerly awaited to determine whether modern stenting techniques are as effective as surgery in the long run. Also, there might still be a place for endovascular treatment, as not all patients are suitable for endarterectomy treatment. Thanks very much, Alison. And next, another research article, and this is a genetic study concerning Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Tell us about this disorder. 
Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a fatal progressive muscle wasting disease that affects about 1 in 3,500 boys. It's an X-linked disorder that is caused by mutations that disrupt the production of the dystrophin protein, which is essential for normal muscle structure. And the symptoms usually begin at about three years of age, and most patients become wheelchair-bound in their early teens and survive only until their mid-20s to 30s. And this is an early... Uh, proof-of-concept study, what were its objectives? Well, unfortunately, no disease-modifying treatments are available for this disease at the moment. So the aims of this study were to test the safety and biochemical efficacy of a promising new treatment strategy that involves injecting molecules known as antisense oligonucleotides into the muscle. The aim of this was to establish production of a functional form of dystrophin, which in theory should be beneficial to patients. And Yes, Alison, and to a non-expert like myself, this looks like quite a complex genetic study as you suggested it's concerning biochemical processes concerning gene expression for dystrophin which is is the key compound here. You're right Richard the methodology is complex. The idea behind the strategy is to use the antisense molecule to interfere with the normal splicing of the gene by skipping the mutated exon that would otherwise lead to the production of a non-functional version of dystrophin. This allows a shorter than normal but functional form of the protein to be made and the hope is that this form of the protein would lead to milder symptoms in patients treated in this way. And in this study the investigators injected the antisense molecule into relatively non-functional muscles of one foot in seven patients and injected saline into the other foot of each patient as a control procedure. And the results, Alison, um, obviously very preliminary but seem quite encouraging. Yes, they are promising results. After three or four weeks, muscle biopsies showed that exon skipping had taken place in all seven patients. And in five patients who had received a higher dose of the molecule, they found evidence for production of dystrophin. It was encouraging to see that there were no adverse events to the procedure as well. It's important to mention, though, that this was a selected group of patients and the antisense molecule used, used in this study was designed to target the specific mutation that occurs in these patients. And this is a mutation that is found in about 13% of cases. So different approaches would need to be developed for use in patients with different mutations. And as you mentioned, the results are preliminary. And whether this approach would lead to clinical benefits is not yet known. The findings are encouraging, though. And on the basis of these results, the investigators have initiated a dose-ranging study in patients who are still able to walk to assess the safety and efficacy of repeated doses of systemic delivery of this antisense molecule. And briefly, do just point us to any other highlights you've got in the October issue. Our leading edge this month looks at the potential neurological complications of pandemic H1N1 influenza and the vaccines for this virus and stresses the need for coordinated surveillance programmes involving the neurological community to systematically monitor for these potential complications. And among the other highlights, we have the BEYOND study, which is a trial of interferon beta versus glitirama acetate for the treatment of relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. We have a review looking at the risks and benefits of dopamine agonists in Parkinson's disease and we have a review of blood pressure as a modifiable risk factor in acute stroke. Many thanks Alison. Those are some of the highlights from the October issue of The Lancet Neurology. We'll be back next month.